Welcome back to another episode of the Profit First for Lawyers podcast. My name is Carly, and if you are someone who enjoys bullet points more than paragraphs or cliff notes instead of reading the whole dang book, or prefers to skim down to the TLDR at the end of a long post, then this episode is dedicated especially to you. The seven main parts of every successful law firm, which are also the seven main parts of every law firm that's struggling and quietly ruining the lives of the lawyers who own them. While Arjun was away, Team Arjun came to play. All the cats out of the bag now, folks, but we're still here bringing you our favorite and most importantly, actionable insights to Arjun's newest book, Profit First for Lawyers. We're gonna help you accelerate your law firm's growth so that you can experience more profit in every aspect of your life. We're also going to be providing some behind-the-scenes footage of what it's really like to work with our John Robbins. So, put your BS aside for the next few minutes and put yourself, your family, your firm, and your profit first. For a while now, we've been going over the seven main parts of every successful and unsuccessful law firm and just wrapped things up there on episode 21. If you'd rather get into the thick of the details and listen to all the juicy behind-the-scenes stories I shared, we've got links to those episodes in our show notes below. But today isn't about the long explanations. Today is for my bullet point people. So let's get into a brief summary of the seven main parts of every successful law firm and why getting those seven parts into alignment will help your law firm achieve more success. The seven main parts are marketing, sales, production, people, physical plant, financial controls or money and metrics, and finally, you and your goals. So let's get into it, starting with part one, marketing. Here's what Arjun had to say. Marketing is everything that gets done. Notice I said everything that gets done. It doesn't have to be done by you, the owner. Marketing is everything that gets done to bring the right kind of prospective new clients to the right place at the right time in the right quantity in the right frame of mind. Marketing should not only be used as a magnet to attract the right kind of clients to you, it should also be used as a magnet to repel the wrong kind of clients from you to protect you, to protect your staff, and hey, let's have a little respect for the prospective client who you ought to know isn't the right kind of prospective client for your firm, or maybe they're a wonderful person, but they just don't have the right kind of case. Let's not waste their time. Let's not waste your staff's time. Let's not waste your time, your money, your resources. Let's tell them with our marketing, this is not the right firm for you. So marketing is everything that gets done to attract the right kind of prospective new clients to your firm. That means you have to have a clear understanding of who the right kind of clients are. You need to have a good client avatar. So marketing is everything that gets done to attract the right kind of clients to your door and to repel the wrong kind of clients from your door. Okay, part two, sales. Here's what Arjun had to say. Sales is a service you do for your clients. Sales is not something you do to another person. When done the right way, sales is one of the most thoughtful, caring, considerate, and I'll even go so far as to say one of the most loving things you can do for another person in business. Sales is nothing more than helping a person make sense of their situation and find clarity about their options. 
and then help them make an educated, informed decision about what they want to do now that they understand clearly where they are today, how the current situation might be affecting them in terms of their time, how their current situation might be affecting them in terms of their money, how their current situation might be affecting them in terms of their reputation. This is how the situation is affecting you in terms of your time, your money, and your reputation. And I found this out because I asked you questions. Sales is mostly about asking thoughtful, caring, considerate questions. Where do you want to be in the future? If I could wave my magic wand and tap you on the head with it, an instant presto, you go from where we are now to where you want to be, where would that place be? How would you want your situation to be different in terms of your time? How would you want your situation to be different in terms of your money? How would you want your situation to be different in terms of your reputation? Now we go back to where we are today and we look at an alternate future, sort of like the ghost of Christmas future. If you don't do anything about your situation as it exists today, are things likely to get better by themselves? Are things likely to stay the same? Or are things likely to get worse? Now, as a sales professional, as a thoughtful, caring, considerate, compassionate sales professional, I believe we owe our prospective new clients a duty to help them take a real honest look at these two potential futures. And if we believe that our service can help them arrive at a better place, then we should tell them that. If we believe that they're likely to wind up in a worse place without our help, we should let them know. Of course, if we believe that they're going to wind up in a worse place or the same place with or without our services, then the ethical, the professional, and even the profitable thing to do is don't make the sale. Sales is not something that you do to someone. It is something, sincerely, that you do for someone. That is probably one of my favorite quotes in the whole book. You should have a consistent, predictable, organized, methodical, ethical system for your sales process. And it should be something that is replicable and trainable and reflects the kind of experience that your marketing efforts have promised. Part three, production. Here's our John. The difference between the successful law firms and the unsuccessful law firms is the degree to which the owner of the law firm thinks this stuff through, gives it care and attention, documents, processes, systems, procedures, invests in training people to manage these processes and run these systems for the business. When care and attention is given to the seven main parts of the law firm, it becomes successful. When these seven main parts are neglected, the law firm struggles. Documenting processes, documenting systems, documenting procedures, checklists, templates, examples, step-by-step -step written instructions using these things called words in plain English. This is how I want the job done. This is how you put this together. Here is an example of what a finished product should look like. This is why this matters. Look out for this. Look out for that. You went to law school. You can draft a contract. You can put together a coherent opening statement in a lawsuit. You can cross-examine witnesses. You can conduct depositions. You can answer interrogatories. You can write letters. I promise you, you have all of the skills you need 
to document processes and systems and procedures. If you have not done so already, please read or listen to The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. It spells this out in plain English. You'll understand it. You can do this, I promise. Marketing leads to sales. Sales leads to production. That production should be done in a systematic, organized, predictable, replicable way. And it gets done by people. As Arjun says, it is so much more practical and so much more profitable and so much more fun when you can grow a firm with documented systems and procedures. On to part four, people. Here's what Arjun said. The fourth main part of every successful law firm is the people. Do you have a written job description for the job of the receptionist, secretary, paralegal, junior associate, senior associate, rainmaker, manager, or anyone? Do you have key performance indicators that you use to engineer each job so that you can make sure that each job is designed to be profitable and not just leave it to chance? Do you have objective criteria and clear job descriptions that will give your staff some protection? Protection against what you ask? Protection against you. That's what they need protection from. They need protection for when you come in ranting and raving, asking your people, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Your staff needs protection against you. Job descriptions allow your people to say, look, this is clearly within the realm of my job. Job descriptions also will allow your employees to say, look, this is clearly outside the scope of my job. If you want me to do this, let's put it inside the scope of my job, and that's okay. We can revise my job description, but don't start yelling at me for doing things that I'm not supposed to do. This is not an excuse for someone to just say, that's not my job. I'm not going to do that. You don't want to have someone like that working for you, but you do want people who know clearly whose job is what, because when it's everyone's job, then it becomes no one's job, and that is when things fall through the cracks. Another reason to have key performance indicators is so that you have objective data and metrics by which to judge the performance of your employees. That way, the employee is protected from favoritism, and this way, you are protected from accusations of favoritism. Let me give an example. Bob has a big personality, and everyone likes Bob because he's Mr. Big Personality. Mary, she doesn't have a big personality. Everyone doesn't necessarily love Mary because she doesn't have a big, friendly personality like Bob. Now, without clear job descriptions, without key performance indicators, without objective data and metrics to use to manage Bob versus Mary, who both have the same job, we all know how this is going to go down most of the time. Bob is going to be the one who gets the promotions. Bob is going to get the bonuses. Mary is going to get overlooked. Mary is going to get passed over for opportunities because you're going to end up gravitating towards big personality Bob. But when you look at the data, when you look at the metrics and the key performance indicators, you're going to be able to see that objectively speaking, Mary is the more valuable, profitable, productive, and more reliable employee. 
The point is you need proper job descriptions. The jobs need to be engineered to be profitable for the employee. The job needs to be engineered to be profitable for the clients. And the job needs to be obviously engineered to be profitable for the law firm and for you as the owner. One of the things that we mentioned in episode 15 was how important it is to have key performance indicators that are measurable and objective so that we can attack behavior rather than people and so that we can reward excellence instead of charismatic personalities. Uh, One thing that Arjun often tells us is that his own companies run as meritocracies. And I've seen this firsthand. And I can say as the employee and as the kind of employee that does have a pretty big personality, admittedly, it is such a better way to work. I mean, you can't BS numbers and data. So getting a bonus has never felt as good knowing that it was really earned. Let's move on to part five, physical plant. So here's what Arjun had to say about that. And that brings us to the fifth main part of every successful law firm, which is the physical plant. It doesn't matter whether your employees work in your office where you can see them every single day, or if they work from their own home, or if they work out in the metaverse somewhere. They're working from somewhere on planet Earth, and therefore they need a place to sit and do their job. They need desks, they need chairs, they need illumination, they need telecommunications, they need a computer, they need software, they need checklists, they need templates, they need instructions. They need physical plant. Lots of law firms stall out because the owner doesn't anticipate the physical plant needs of a fast-growing law firm. Imagine you've got a law firm that has one employee and one desk and one office. And then you execute a great marketing plan. And you do a phenomenal job at sales. And you've got wonderful processes and systems and procedures that keeps your staff and your clients happy and your law firm profitable. And hooray, hooray, now your business grows. And now you need three employees, but you still only have one desk and one office. You've got to keep your physical plant right-sized to your law firm. For example, if you were to put fancy tablecloths and fine china and beautiful silver and nice crystal glasses in a McDonald's business model, that obviously wouldn't make any sense. Similarly, if you were to try to put plastic tables and plastic chairs and bolt them to the floor, and serve the food on a plastic wrap in a paper bag, that wouldn't make any sense either for the fancy steak restaurant. The point is, the business model needs to all hang together and make sense. There's nothing wrong with having plastic tables and plastic chairs bolted to the floor and a playground out the window for the parents to watch the kitties while they eat their cheeseburgers. There's nothing wrong with having crystal and silver and fine linen and a beautiful candlelit environment. You have to make sure the physical plant is properly aligned to the business model, which means it has to be properly aligned to the marketing so that you set proper expectations for your prospective new clients so that your salespeople are selling an honest product and giving people what they came to expect when they came in through marketing. So marketing leads to sales, sales leads to production, 
Production gets done by following processes and systems and procedures and checklists and templates. Production gets done by people, and people use physical plant. Your physical plant should match your marketing, and it should provide your employees with everything they need in order to do their jobs effectively. Now, here's what Arjun had to say about part six, financial controls. Which brings us to part number six, which is financial controls. If you get the marketing done right, and you do the sales right, and you get the production right, and you manage your people effectively, and they use the tools and resources that you give them in the physical plant, you're going to have this stuff called revenue and expenses and profit. In addition to the typical traditional financial statements, which is the profit and loss statement, which shows revenue coming in, expenses going out, and the difference between revenues and expenses going out, which is typically described as profit. You also have a balance sheet. The balance sheet shows the assets that the firm owns, the liabilities that the firm owes, including uncompleted work that's owed to clients and the value or the cost associated with that incomplete work that you still owe to the clients. And the difference between the assets versus the liabilities shows you how much equity you have in your law firm. So your profit and loss statement is like an income statement, shows you income coming in, expenses going out, money left over, and the firm's balance sheet shows whether all of this work you're doing every day, every week, every month, every year is actually building any equity in your business, which if you do it right, you should build equity and you should be able to turn your law firm into a valuable, saleable asset. I know there's lots of lawyers who think you can't sell a law firm, but they're wrong. You can sell a law firm, and every year there are thousands of law firms that are being bought and sold by entrepreneurs who understand how to put profit first. In addition to the typical financial statements, the P&L, the balance sheet, and of course the cash flow report, which shows the cash coming in, the cash coming out, there are other key performance indicators and metrics that you're going to want to keep track of on your dashboard so that you can look at a glance to see if everything's working properly under the hood. In one of the early versions of the manuscript of Profit First for Lawyers, Arjun talked about a time that he went on a vacation with his wife, Allie, to the jungles of Belize. And so he has a dashboard when he goes on vacation that he looks at once per day so he can have peace of mind and so that he can only be available to the team when there's an honest-to-goodness emergency so we don't have to interrupt his vacation. And of course, the definition of emergency is very long and very detailed, so nobody on the team is unclear on what that actually means. On this particular trip, he tells a pretty funny story about uh, seeing red on his dashboard and having to trek out into the middle of the jungle to try to find Wi-Fi so he could get a hold of the team and figure out what was happening. And even though his description of trying to find Wi-Fi in the middle of the jungle was pretty amusing, I'll try to find one of those clips, the moral of that story was that because he had a dashboard that measured KPIs that reflected the health of the business, he knew the moment something of significance happened and he was able to fix it over the phone. And he could continue relaxing on the rest of his vacation, really trusting that if there was another issue, he would know about it almost exactly when it happened. In other words, if you want peace of mind and to take an emergency access-only vacation, make sure that you know what numbers you need to see that reflect the health of your business and get your dashboards all set up. 
Okay, folks, here's the last one, part seven, you and your goals. This part is pretty important. So when thinking of the seven main parts, Arjun often mentions that they they feel pretty linear, right? Part one to part two to part three, so on and so forth. But actually, they're more like the spokes on a wheel. And the center of the wheel is part seven. That's you. So here's what Arjun said. Which brings us to your goals. The seventh, and I would argue, the most important part of your law firm. Remember, marketing leads to sales. Sales leads to production. Production requires people. People use things. That's physical plant. If you do it all right, there are financial controls and metrics and key performance indicators that you're going to want to keep track of. If you do this all right, the law firm works in service of your goals. Remember, your law firm isn't your baby. It's not going to love you. It's not going to give you a hug. As parents, we will do anything for our children. We live for our children sometimes. We would die for our children sometimes. We make all kinds of sacrifices for our children because this is a biological imperative of our species. Your law firm isn't your baby. You're not supposed to work for your law firm. Your law firm is a business. Your business is supposed to work for you. Now, I've been having this conversation with thousands and thousands and thousands of lawyers for going on a few decades now. And I have found that there's a much more practical, much more professional, much more ethical, and a much more profitable analogy to use than that of a parent and child when thinking about one's relationship with your law firm and you as the owner of the law firm. The best analogy that I have figured out 20 years ago is the farmer and the mule. Think about why the farmer has a mule. The farmer has a mule so that the mule can pull the farmer's plow. And why does the farmer care about having the plow pulled? Well, the farmer wants to have the plow pulled so the farmer can grow crops. And why does the farmer care about growing crops? Because the farmer wants to feed the farmer's family. And if the farmer manages the mule well, manages the crop rotations well, and does the job right, there should be, hopefully, enough crops left over after feeding the farmer's family. See, profit first. Feed your family first. Then you can take the crops and share them with everyone else by taking them to market and selling them. Now, does this mean that you can abuse the mule? No, you can't abuse the mule if you expect the mule to operate at peak performance. Can you neglect the mule? No, you can't neglect the mule, not if you want the mule to operate at peak performance. You still have to train, feed, house, care for, and manage the mule if you want the mule to do its job for you and your family. But you ought not be taking pride in how many hours you spend in the barn with the mule. Everywhere I go, I find lawyers who are bragging about how many hours they spend in the barn with the mule. They're literally bragging about how badly they manage their law firm. They're bragging about how poorly they manage their businesses. Now, they don't call it bragging. They call it commiserating. But you can do this test. You can go to any bar function anywhere in the country, and you can just report honestly and accurately 
about our definition of a successful law firm. To be successful in my book, and so this is my book, I'm saying in my book, to be successful, a law firm has to serve you financially, has to give you enough net operating income to live the way you want to live, has to serve you personally, has to give you the freedom to have a life, and it has to serve you professionally, has to give you the ability to make a positive impact in the world in a way that, that matters to you as a person and as a professional. That's our definition of a successful law firm. You can go to any bar function, and if you report honestly and accurately about the financial performance of your law firm, the personal performance of your law firm, and the professional performance of your law firm, they're either going to call you a hero or a villain, depending on what the results are. It's so strange. If you go and you say, financially, my law firm gross revenues have doubled and doubled and doubled again. I've eradicated accounts receivables. My law firm profits keep growing and growing and growing. And financially, I'm doing great. Everything's wonderful. They're all going to say you're bragging. If, on the other hand, you go and you say, oh, the economy is no good. The accounts receivables are out of control. The clients won't pay. They're all going to start bragging and competing for who's worse. $20,000 in accounts receivables, that's nothing. I've got $30,000 in accounts receivables. And then someone else is going to say $30,000 in accounts receivables, that's nothing. I've got $40,000. They're bragging about their problems. Now, if you report honestly and accurately about the financial performance of your law firm, why should it be called bragging if the results are desirable, but not bragging if the results are undesirable? Bragging is bragging. Let's say you report honestly and accurately about the personal performance of your law firm, and you say, hey, I've got my processes, my systems, my procedures already thought through, documented, and thought out. I've taken care to hire, train, onboard, and manage my staff professionally. And consequently, I can step away from my firm for a week at a time. I can step away from my firm for two weeks at a time. I can step away from my firm for 30 consecutive days with emergency access only, which is the standard that most of the members of How to Manage a Small Law Firm hold as their standard. And while I'm away, the marketing keeps working, the sales keeps working, the people keep producing, the clients keep getting served, the bills keep getting paid, everything in the business keeps working. If you report honestly and accurately on the personal performance of your law firm and it's good, most of the lawyers at that local bar function, if they even believe you, because this is so far out of the realm of their awareness, if they even believe you, they're going to say you're bragging. But those very same lawyers will sit around and compete for who spends more time in the barn with their mule. Oh, you know, I spent 50 hours in the office last week. 50 hours? That's nothing. I spent 60 hours. 60 hours? My third ex-wife told me that I spent too many hours when I spent 80 hours in the office. They're bragging about how badly they run their businesses. And then, of course, professionally. If you report honestly and accurately about how much good your law firm is doing in the world as measured by the number of clients it helps, not just based on your ego, 
most of the lawyers in struggling law firms that you're going to meet at most local bar associations are going to accuse you of bragging. Your goals and your needs and your family's needs are the most important parts of your law firm. If your business is not serving you and your needs, then something's got to give. If you have any questions on how to do that, feel free to send me an email at podcast at profitfirstforlawyers.com and I'll dig up the information for you. In the meantime, if you'd like a free resource to build a business plan and get your seven main parts in alignment, you can download that at profitfirstforlawyers.com forward slash business plan. Again, that's profitfirstforlawyers.com forward slash business plan. Or if you're driving and can't get a pen, just send me an email at podcast at profitfirstforlawyers.com and I'll send that resource over to you again completely for free. And that's what we've got for you today, folks. I really hope this series has been valuable for you and that you've gotten a lot of great actionable insights from it as promised. Stay tuned next time as we talk with Arjun's personal tax strategist, Larry Brown. Larry, I promise, is dynamic and funny and extremely knowledgeable, and you are not going to want to miss his interview. I'll see you there. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Profit First for Lawyers. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, tell a friend. And buy your copy of the book at ProfitFirstForLawyers.com. Your future self will thank you for it. And we will see you next time.